coming and engaging with this retreat over the days, I've found myself remembering what it was like when I first began teaching. My teachers asked me to assist them so quite some time ago now and sort of just be there and occasionally would uh, be invited to say something or do something and sort of then one would just sort of disappear into the background for a while. And haven't really had an experience like that for quite some years and probably it's been you know, 15, 18 years, something like that. So it's interesting for me to uh, to be here with you all in this way that's rather unusual for me, not sort of fully engaged in the retreat as I would normally be when teaching. And I sometimes wonder how that is for you also. On this evening, as you've probably worked out by now, Catherine's decided she's done enough speaking. And uh, this afternoon, handed it over to me. So uh, there's something rather nice also for me, a sense of having a chance to engage with you in another way. And so in reflecting on what I'd like to speak about and talking with Catherine to hear what she'd been speaking about, it seemed to us that a, a subject that will be perhaps useful to reflect on or for me to offer some, some teaching on is the, the subject of love. It's a pretty heavily used, if not overused, word. And yet it's something I think very much of central importance to us all. And it's a place in the title of this retreat, Awakening Love and Wisdom, may have been something that you resonated with or responded to in coming here. Or maybe not, it was more to do with the time of year or the teachers who were at least supposed to be here. Things don't always turn out the way we expect. And interestingly, I observed on the Guy House website about a week ago that there was a a fresh banner headline up for this retreat. And I noticed with some consternation that they'd only listed one of the teachers. Obviously a sort of minor mistake. Um, that It was Catherine's name and not Martin's. And I thought, oh, that's a bit strange. Someone obviously just forgot. And then later on, after Martin's rather unfortunate accident, I thought, gosh, maybe they knew something. <laughs> Certainly we didn't know anything. Certainly Martin didn't. I didn't. And yet here we are. Here we are. So when I reflect on the the theme, the idea, the word perhaps you could say, love, what, what stands out perhaps initially or one thing that really comes to mind for me is how how much and how universally we all wish to be loved how deep and powerful a urge or a yearning or a, a wish that is. Something universal in that, in that desire or that movement or that yearning to connect, to be held, to be touched, to have a sense of a, a caring and intimate encounter with others or with life in the way that we understand what love is or how we experience it, how we know it. And I think it's very true 
this sense of is very very real for us. There was a an experiment I heard about some years ago where there was some investigation of this this wish to to connect to feel that sense of of what it is that we maybe understand as connection or bonding or however we might understand that. And it involved a young monkey being taken from its mother and placed in an enclosure where in one part of the enclosure there was a soft, warm, furry, mother-like thing, sort of a surrogate mother. And on the other side of the enclosure there was some food. And the experiment was to see what, what would the monkey choose? This very small baby monkey. With, when it's with its mother, food and warm, cuddly, caring, warm, it's all in the same place. And what they found, which was in some ways not surprising, in other ways quite shocking, was that the baby would choose to stay with the warm, soft, mother-like thing, despite there being no food there, and if it was left, would, wouldn't go to the food, wouldn't take food, and would even, it seemed and I think they didn't let it get that far, but it would, it seemed likely to have starved in the presence of food because that which it wanted to connect with, that it understood perhaps, or what we might and I might sense as a, that which is more the obvious place from which it's seeking love, was separated from that source of nourishment. And just reflecting on that, I was sensing that it... It resonates for me because of that sense of, oh yeah, that may, I could understand that. And yet it's also, whoa, tragic. How tragic that would be. So there's this importance that we give as, as beings, not just human beings. So something recognized in mammals equally. To being loved. And I reflected on this, I've done this often. But in this context, what is it that's so important about that? Apart from that, of course, it feels nice, it makes me feel good. You know, we, we all know we like that. We all know how important it is to us, but why is that? What's that about? And it's not just, I think, because it's lovely or delightful or makes us feel good about ourselves, though all those things can be important for us. What it also does, and what I can sense for myself it allows, is that there's a certain safety that happens when we feel loved, when we feel the presence of something that's caring, that's not only not threatening or non-harmful to us, but actually cares about us or our well-being, which we could say is a a primary element of what we experience as, as love or being loved. And when there's that sense of safety, when there's that sense of not just non-threatened, but actually cared for or supported, protected in a way, it allows the heart to open. It allows our own heart to extend forth, to be available to us and to the world. It becomes, when we are loved, it becomes safe to love. And that capacity for loving, I would suggest, is in fact more important to us than the receiving of love. Although I'm not in any way suggesting that receiving love, and particularly in, as, as a child and growing up or a baby, it's, it's crucial to healthy and wholesome development. And yet, as adults, 
we can sometimes feel that what we're looking for still and what we sometimes sacrifice many of the things we deeply value for is a sense of needing to be loved, to somehow get this or draw this towards us. And it's my understanding and my sense that the deeper need here for us is to allow our hearts to open and that we imagine that can only happen in the context of being loved. But that this is not ultimately so. That the capacity of our heart and the capacity of what it is to be human is something that has that capacity for loving not dependent upon whether we are loved. Not dependent on whether we imagine ourselves to be safe in that context. And a fundamental and crucial element of meditation, of dharma practices, is learning to hold our own heart, learning to extend to our own being that quality of loving kindness and friendliness and care and non-threat that allows our heart to be open, to extend that to others and to life. unconditionally, to not be dependent upon what life is bringing to us or offering us in our capacity to connect with that that which is in our hearts, which we could call love. And yet to learn to love unconditionally perhaps is one of the hardest things we might seek or undertake. The world seems at times so threatening, so dangerous. We can experience what feels like violence, harm. And even just the unpredictability of life makes us tend to recoil from it, that we don't know what's going to happen. It's hard to stay open when we're not quite sure of what's going to happen next. It's one of the reasons we tend to get into our stories about the past and the future, is we're somehow trying to figure out, predict and organise what's going to happen next so that we can feel safe. And you may notice that the, the whole experience of fear, that's such, such a powerful feature of life, or can be. I mean, if we ask ourselves, how much of our lives has been spent seeking to avoid that which we fear? How much of our energy, how much of our time goes into that? Even as we, as, as many of you will have noticed and some of you have spoken of in groups, even just the, the fear of our mental activity and the amount of energy that goes into trying to stop it, thinking that meditation will be the solution to all of that. And perhaps starting to notice that it's not necessarily going to work in that way. But that way in which we attempt to move away from or withdraw from that which seems threatening to us, <coughs> It doesn't work. We notice that. We start to see that we need to turn to that very experience of feeling threatened and bring to it some degree of kindness. Rather than waiting for there to be an absence of fear, we actually have to respond to it with the very quality that it makes very difficult, it seems, for us to connect with. So understanding fear in this way, seeing how it draws us into the future 
with a story. There's always a story with fear that makes it seem as if the fear is about something in the future. But it never is. Fear is always about the immediate experience. It's always something that's happening right here and now. And if we bring our attention to the body and feel that and open to that, it doesn't have the power to disconnect us. And that's the power that has the effect of closing the heart. When we disconnect from where we are because we're moving into the future, driven by fear, driven by anxiety, we can make friends with the the experience right here. That doesn't mean it's easy or enjoyable, but that we recognize that what this needs is kindness, is care. And it doesn't mean we can't wisely and appropriately respond to things that need us to step away from them. There's a lovely story of a, a student and seeker going to um, or listening to a talk by Krishnamurti, the great Indian teacher who, who lived in the last century. And uh, at some point Krishnamurti was speaking about fear and how lives are so easily governed and driven by fear. And there was, it was in a large auditorium and there was a sort of a, like a an upper level and a lower level. And someone at the front of the upper level, he looked over down to Krishnamurti and said, Krishnamurti, it's not true that fear is is just a problem and only limiting to us. In fact, it's fear that stops me from jumping off this balcony and hurting myself. Krishnamurti says, he looks up and he says, you know, that's not fear. That's intelligence. (laughs) It's like when there's actually something that can be responded to, there's an intelligence that cares, that means we can make a choice to not jump off a balcony or to get out of the way of a vehicle that's coming towards us. That's intelligence. It's not fear. Fear is the bit where there's nothing on the road coming towards us and we're still unable, in fact, more often unable to move or respond because we're not really there. We're we're somewhere else. Generally, as I said, drawn to the future. And so the movement away doesn't actually remove us from the experience, which is part of why we get frustrated with it, part of why we get angry. And when we can't avoid that which we fear, anger tends to be what shows up. Some of you have spoken about this. We see it. Here, it's a little bit harder, quite intentionally, a little bit harder to move away from the things that might seem to be generating fear because the environment set up to kind of close off some of the escape routes that we normally have. There's not so many avenues, you know, we don't have access to a fridge stocked full of food or a television with 36 channels or all of that. And so we're left here with it. And what happens when we can't avoid that which we're afraid of, which is generally that which we find painful, unpleasant, uncomfortable, unflattering? we start to feel like it's not okay. There's something wrong here. It's not fair. Life's unfair. People are bad. There's something wrong with me. There's this whole way in which we reject or we, in fact, become sort of quite harsh towards others or ourselves as a way of trying to protect ourselves from the pain or the discomfort that we're encountering because of not being able to escape from our life or those aspects of life that are difficult. 
And that anger, that sense of you or me or it or they are somehow bad or wrong, there's a a sort of a moral tone in anger that has the effect, it, it sort of produces a sense of solidity or hardness. Perhaps we recognize it physically. When anger comes, there's a hardness. And the mind actually hardens. If you've observed it, if you've paid attention to it, when anger comes into the mind, it becomes hard, it becomes dense, it becomes tight. And that very tightness has the effect of, of closing the access or the sense of connection with or contact with our heart, with that sense of caring that sense of tenderness, of warmth. And in the very movement of anger, there can, be a, there can be a loss of something that we feel very keenly. It's an incredibly challenging experience and it's important that we don't start judging the fact that it arises because it does arise and it has a place and a purpose. Part of what it does is it helps us actually engage in a situation where we feel threatened, not to just collapse or withdraw. But when we identify with the thinking that arises around it that says there's something or someone or some part of me that's bad or wrong, and that's always there with anger, there's that, um, that judgmental evaluation that has a a sort of like a justification for the anger, which says, I'll teach that, or you, or I'll you know, sort of punish in some way by pushing away that which we find difficult or painful. And we play this out inside ourselves. We play this out with our own being, where some aspect of our own experience or how we perceive ourselves to be seems problematic or painful or difficult, And we become angry with it. And there's that sense of pushing away or judging or closing our heart too. It's so painful. It's so painful. And we would naturally and understandably, we want to know, well, how can I open my heart? How can I I work with this? So one of the things we need to, to understand here or to reflect on perhaps is, just how it doesn't serve us. Not out of a judgment of it, but just saying, oh, this doesn't serve us. It appears to protect us. That sort of hardening and pushing away seems to provide a protection for us, but in fact, there's a deeper loss that we start to come into contact with. And as we notice that loss, that loss of the sensitivity and the openness and the the tender vitalness of our, our loving heart, we realize that I'm not sure that is a price worth paying here. We start to doubt the logic of the anger that says, you know, get rid of this at all costs. It has that kind of attacking energy to it. There's There's a wonderful story of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who was once asked in an interview, um, with regard to the situation in Tibet. And the interviewer said to him, it seems that despite so many terrible things happening to you and your country and your people, you don't seem to be angry with the the Chinese government. And I don't understand. If it was me, I'd be raging at them. And His Holiness, he said, you know, they've taken away my country. 
They've imprisoned my monks and my nuns. They've beaten my people. They've taken from me everything they could take. Should I let them take my heart and mind as well? And very interesting, that sense of understanding that when we allow our mind and heart to be taken, to be overtaken by the forces of anger and of hatred, it's like we lose them. And this is perhaps the most precious thing we have. So what is it to see for ourselves that the greatest danger we might be in is not the threats that appear around us that produce discomfort or pain or embarrassment, many different things we have to encounter in life, but it's the way in which we react to them, mostly unconsciously, but with some degree of believing in the justification or the validity of that reaction. And that reaction leading to a closing of the heart and a loss of something so vital and so precious. So to... I think acknowledge, and I think it's important to acknowledge, that that whole reaction has a protective intention. The intention behind it is to try and protect that which we care for. We only get angry about things that we care for or things being done to that which we care for. When we get angry with what we see in the world, it's because we care about the people or the environment or the planet or whatever it is that we see being affected by unskillful action. When we get angry with ourselves, it's because we see in ourselves something that seems to threaten me. Some behavior that means that if I'm like this, I'll be rejected or attacked by others. And so trying to protect myself by preventing myself from being attacked or rejected by others, I attempt to suppress that behavior in myself. And with the anger of rejection towards it as a way of trying to stop it happening, of course, we know it doesn't stop it happening. And yet, we can see how that works. We can perhaps understand that mechanism. And it arises around a basic misunderstanding that suggests that there is pain in my life because I or someone else have done something wrong. And it shouldn't be this way. And if only they didn't mess up and I didn't mess up, then there wouldn't be any, any pain in life. But this isn't so. Fundamental understanding in Dharma teachings, the teachings of the Buddha, is the acknowledgement of suffering. That in life, this is a component of what we encounter. And no life is outside of that truth. No life that is lived by a human or other being is not touched at times by pain, by suffering. It's not because anyone has done anything wrong. It's the nature of this thing. 
to be born, to age, to get sick, to die. And through that, this body experiences many uncomfortable things. Having a heart, and the Buddha spoke about being subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. He spoke about being subject to pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation and despair. And it doesn't sound great, does it? It's not like what you'd expect on an advertisement for a meditation retreat. Come along, experience this. And yet, saying, yeah, if we have a heart that feels, that's touched, that's affected by life, that's in contact with it, it will encounter this. And if you doubt or you imagine that a life could be lived without encountering pain in that way, sure, maybe say, yeah, physically it's hard getting born, it's not easy dying or getting ill, but maybe if it was all right, then the heart could just be happy all the time. But, you know, that's not possible. And here's at least one way of understanding, for me, how that's so. If in this life you love something or someone, at some point you'll be separated from that person or that situation or that thing. Be a place, be a circumstance, be a, a, a being or be it a role or something, that anything that you love at some point through accident, through intention or ultimately through death, you'll be separated from that. And that will be painful. The heart will feel that. that ah. It's inextricably bound up with the fact that we love things is that when we're separated from them, or love beings when we're separated from them, it hurts. And the only way we can avoid that is to have never loved something or someone in this life. And if we never loved something or someone in this life, that hurts. (laughs) There's no way out of this. It happens for us. We recognize that, perhaps. And so there are no conditions for a life that is not touched by pain. And that the reaction to it of rejecting that in anger, of pushing away and blaming others, ourselves, that's not the most useful thing. It's not to say there isn't a place for saying no to that which is harmful or unskillful for being very clear in ourselves that if we've got patterns of behavior that undermine our well-being, that we want to work with them to be more free from their influence. Or if there are situations in the world that are harmful and we have an ability to respond to them, we might step up and say, this has to be addressed. That's very different. Again, that's intelligence. Because we care. But the, the reality of suffering, of pain as part of life, calls for us to respond to it with love. That's what we're asked to learn to do. That pain and suffering does not have to mean the closing of the heart. And often the closing of the heart around that happens because we feel isolated in it. It feels like it's just happening to me. And that's not okay. So we feel separated from, disconnected by the experience of pain or suffering because of the way we identify with it. It feels like it's happening to me. And that's not okay. And the, the me has a sense of, ah, you can almost feel it, ah. And yet when we see and we hear, and it's not unusual in the small group interviews, that we hear other people's experience, and we realize, oh, it's happening for them as well. So maybe it's slightly different. Sometimes it's 
scarily similar to our own. It's like, wow, it's really the same. But even if it's quite different, it's still we recognize what it is that other people are also impacted by the difficult. At times, of course, that's not all of our experience, but it's a significant part of it. And in seeing that, there's a sense of, huh, maybe this doesn't separate me. Maybe this connects me to other things, to other beings. And that sense of to meet it with love, what would that be for us? To meet that which threatens us with love. When I was first travelling in, in Asia, I, I went to Calcutta in India, which is where my grandmother is from and where she lives or lived at that time. Um, and I'd never met her before. She was a sort of a, just a piece of you know, family history, I guess, or not quite history, but family story that I really knew nothing about her. And when I um, looked up the address <coughs> and found my way there, went to knock on the door and was met by a very... <clears throat> brightly smiling, sort of very small Indian lady. So my grandmother. It was like, quite a lovely thing. And right there, coming into the door, there's a sign that said, Hail, guest, we ask not what thou art. If friend, we greet thee, hand and heart. If stranger such no longer be, if foe, our love will conquer thee. Kind of sweet, almost too sweet. But I sort of saw it and it touched me. And it was only some time later, years later in fact, that I heard some of the stories of her life. And it turns out she was one of the young women, the young Indian maidens who sat down in the, the Gandhian non-violence movement in front of the, the army of the, the British Empire and said, no, we will not fight you, but we will not move. And really that profound expression of commitment to love and non-violence in the face of quite extreme threat. And this was something that had been part of her, her years, part of her life. And so that sense of then, then I kind of brought to mind the sign, and I thought, she wasn't kidding. And that really was her work, that was her practice, that was her commitment. And so... What is it, this willingness to turn towards that which may be threatening to us, to turn towards it, not just begrudgingly like, mm, I guess I have to put up with it, we know that one too, but with a sense of care for, a sense of caring for. I think it requires us to understand that not only do we suffer, but so too do all beings. All beings partake of this. And <clears throat> that there is so much harming in this world because beings do not understand this. I struggled as a teenager to believe, to understand, to try and figure out why it was that so many horrific things were done in this world by beings, human beings mostly, to each other and to other beings. I couldn't understand it. And it wasn't really until in my own 
exploration, I came to see that there's a blindness we have where we don't actually see what's going on. There's a blindness that happens to us. And it's a little bit like, imagine if you were sitting on a park bench one day, enjoying the sunshine, and someone came along and walked past you and kicked you really hard on the leg. And you know, just one moment, you know, calm, peaceful, equanimous, yeah, this meditation must be working, I'm feeling good, you know, whatever. And then the pain in the leg, and it's like, <coughs> imagine you... <laughs> Fill in your own words. I won't. This is being recorded, so I won't tell you what I would have said. Um, and that's your whole response there. And then, as you open your eyes and you want to tell this person, you know, just how stupid and clumsy they are, and you know, get out. You see that they're blind. They've got a stick, and they hadn't seen you. And somehow the stick hadn't seen your foot, but they'd kicked into it, and probably they stumbled, and they might have even fallen, unless they were lucky, caught their balance. And just in that moment, the whole response to what's happening here, like your foot that got kicked really hard hurts just as much. But you realise, oh, oh, this person didn't know what was happening, didn't realise they were about to kick me. And one might have some compassion for the condition of having to walk through the world with the risk of banging into things that might hurt you if you bang into something sharp or hard. Or might attack you if you bump into something that's alive and it doesn't see that you're blind. That reflection is an expression of what for me has been a, a regular process of looking at where I cause suffering in my life, to myself or to others. And all of us do this. All of us have done so. And if we look at those places, and this is something I've done, probably some part of me will say, probably not as often as you should have, but um, <laughs> often enough, so I'm pretty convinced, I'm pretty confident of what I'm speaking about here, that whenever I have done something that's hurt other people, it's come out of my own suffering, my own inability to hold or contain some way of something that's going on in me, and then the tendency to either lash out if it's angry or just be disregarding. That's what I notice more often. It's like disregarding the impact on others because I'm more concerned with, not necessarily even consciously, but in some way trying to escape from suffering in myself, whether it be, as I said, some action that's harsh or harmful or simply just disregards the impact on somebody else. And that's often what probably most of us can recognise, since uh, I don't think probably for most of us we would have the intention to want to harm others where we had the choice. Though perhaps we've had those moments where that was the case. If we see this, then there can be a, a sense of empathy again, a sense of, oh yeah, this is how it is for us. And this is how it is for everyone else. That any harm or suffering that appears to have been caused to me by anybody else was their attempt to somehow protect themselves, to get what they felt they desperately needed, or to escape from something that they were threatened by. It's always like that. Even in the most horrific things that we can't imagine we could forgive or understand, 
in the end, it's driven by the suffering of that being that acts in that horrific way. And I'm not, again, I want to be really clear, I'm not saying that this isn't, that we can't say no or act to really bring an end to harmful activity, but that in the heart, staying with a sense of sensitivity, of kindness, of care towards this being that's alive, that also experiences suffering. And when, and through a process of reflection such as I described, there's a humility that comes where we realize actually I could cause harm to people just as they to me. And Catherine mentioned to me, she read you the other day, call me by my true names. I don't know if she spoke about the framework in which, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says in his book Being Peace, he wrote that poem having realized that in different situations he could have grown up to be the pilot, sorry, the pirate. In the circumstances that person grew up in, if he'd been in them, he would have turned out that way. And a real humility in that. It's like, wow, yeah. And a, and a gratitude and a good fortune in seeing it was maybe tough for us too, I'm sure. But maybe not quite that bad that it led to that. And yet I don't know your situation. I once spoke about such thing and there was someone in the room who had been in an environment where feeling their life under threat through in a, in a um, I guess, fascist regime, had, had, had had to take life to defend themselves. And it's like, oh, that's tough. So the Buddha invites us to cherish all beings. As a mother would protect with her life her child, her only child, so too with a boundless heart could one cherish all beings. The words from the Sutta, the Mitta Sutta. In that sense of what is to cherish with a boundless heart all beings? We have remarkable capacity, it seems, to go beyond the, the narrowness of our world or our life at times. To go beyond the limited responses of our reactivity. There's a, another remarkable story I'd like to share of a, a woman who was attending a court hearing a trial of a young man aged about 13, 14, I think it was in California. And this young man, having grown up with no stable family, had been living on the streets, had attempted to join one of the local gangs to find some sense of protection and community and had been required as a basically an entry qualification. He had to kill someone. And so he'd taken a gun and he'd killed her son, having never met this young man of just a similar age. He'd killed this other young boy. He was on trial. He was found guilty. And at the end, the woman looked at him when he was sentenced to the juvenile detention institution. She looked at him and said, I'm going to kill you 
and left. And after some time, when the young man was in, in, in the detention institution, she wrote him a letter. It was the first letter he had. He didn't have anyone outside in the world who was making contact with him. She wrote him another. And after a while, she visited, and then again. And over the course of, her, of his detention, she got to know him. It was over a number of years. She spent a lot of time with him, heard his story. And when the time came for him to be released, she said to him, you know, I have an empty room in my house. If you need somewhere to stay, you could stay there. He had nowhere to go. He said, okay. She helped him find some work. And after he'd been living with her for some months, she sat him down and said to him, you know, do you remember what I said to you at the end of your trial? He said, I remember. She said, I meant it. I did not want that in you which could kill my son, my precious son, having never even met him before. I did not want that to survive in you. And I think I've done it, she said. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And I don't have a son anymore, but if you'd be willing to, I'd like you to be my son. I'd like to adopt you. I don't know where the story goes from there. I think he said yes. I don't know what happened after that. But there's something remarkable again in the wisdom and the understanding and the love that sees that the action that took the life of her son, was born of fear and suffering so deep that he was numb to the impact on her son and on her life and so many others of taking that life. And that through extending care and kindness to him, she actually made contact with this man, this young man, and I would say saved his life. Separating out the being from the action in that way is what allows us to open our heart again and again and again, seeing that there is nothing of the being to be condemned, ourself or other. And incredible testament to the capacity of the heart to open. I can only imagine she felt rage and anger and hatred towards this person. But she chose not to act on that, but to act on her wisdom and her love. And there are so many stories we hear about this way in which the human heart can resonate with the life of another, can be touched and touched so many ways. One of my favorite stories from... um, the life of Rio Khan, who's a, who's a poet, a Zen monk, and a, a, sometimes a village idiot and a, a delightful being, one of my favorites from the sort of the Buddhist stories. The story recounts that one day Rio Khan was seen taking the lice out of his robe and placing them one at a time on a rock to sun themselves and looking with great care and concern that they would feel warm on a, on a frosty winter's day when the sun was shining. 
And people, the person that saw this reported with even more amazement that at the end of the day, he picked them up off the stone and put them back in his robe. And you think, what's going on here? That he's voluntarily sharing his body, his blood with these little creatures that must be really irritating. What's going on in this? When the heart is open in this way, when we're touched. To me it speaks to this unstoppable human capacity we have to unlearn the habit of disconnecting. To unlearn the habit of rejecting. To open to life, ourselves and others, unconditionally. The way in which we push away, we reject, we condemn, is based in a conceiving and an idea that we are separate from that which we are pushing away. And that's why we imagine that we might be able to do so. But the very act of pushing away only binds us more to that which we seek to push away. And the fact that we can't actually push anything away is appointed to the fact that there is ultimately nothing that we are separate from. And this is the nature of what love sees. With our mind and our perception and the way it functions and the way of distinguishing this from that, which is really useful for being able to tell what we should eat and what might eat us. So there's a biological value in that function. It's quite helpful. But in terms of the deeper truth of things, the heart... I'm not talking about the physical organ, obviously, but that capacity of love within us, the nature of it is that it does not see separateness. It does not see other. When we experience love, what we notice is there's a sense of so closeness with that maybe we can't even distinguish ourselves from. And this speaks to us. This we treasure, this we long for. Not just because of the love, because of the healing of the sense of separateness. The dissolving of the appearance and the illusion of being apart, of being isolated, of being disconnected. That at the, at the core of spiritual teachings is the seeing into, the experientially understanding. That there is no other. And in Buddhist teachings we often speak about the understanding of not-self that we don't define ourselves by any particularity. And it's true, there is no thing we can point to that is fixed that we can define ourselves and say, this is what or who I am. But we can equally understand the teachings and explore them from the perspective that recognizes there is nothing which is other. There's nothing we can say that we can point to or look at that is somehow apart from that which we are. I'd like to read a piece from Black Elk, who's a a holy man of the Ogala Sioux, a Native American people. And he's describing an experience he had. He was was a a great holy man of that that tribe. He said of one of his uh, profound experiences, he says, And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, 
and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. Seeing the undivided and undivisible nature of life, there's a wholeness, an unbroken wholeness, that is the word from which the root, or the root of the same root as healing and wholeness, and holy, that which we use to evoke that which is of the spiritual. that these come together in that language of wholeness, of healing, of holy. So what do you notice when we stand in the circle on the lawn? Do you sense sometimes that the quality of the connection in that circle is more than just the fact that we're standing there together. Or when you feel your heart resonate to the sharing of someone else in the small group, is there some way in which you sense that you're really not so far away from them as it might appear to your eyes? This wholeness, this holiness is alive. And the texture of it is love. Is the sense of caring that is undivided and undivisible. And this is the nature of love, as I said, to see what it sees as not separate. It's almost that which fills the space of what we could equally call emptiness. But when we recognize the caring and the love, we can equally call it fullness. And so... As a way of speaking about it, it's not exactly like that, but as a way of speaking about it, we can say that love bridges the gap or it fills the space. It joins the apparently separate into a unified whole that is holy. And in the dissolution, in the falling away of that separation, of that separateness, 
there's a natural responsiveness that life has to itself that isn't born of reactivity, of fear, or of a self-centered protectionism, but that is born out of caring for other and for self equally, that wishes to move and respond wherever and however it's possible for the welfare of life, for other beings, for this being equally. And this is the natural response of life. As Shantideva, the uh, teacher of, uh, he was a 6th century Indian poet, teacher, scholar and mystic, and he, he spoke beautifully of this. He says, When acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. that it's something natural and ordinary to care for others, just as it's natural and ordinary to feed ourselves. And he goes on to say, he says, just as we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see all beings as limbs of embodied life? So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.